When we began our study through Revelation, I said that this study was about knowing Jesus more. Yes, we'll learn about end-time events, but knowing Jesus is what studying the book of Revelation is all about. And so today we'll pick up in Revelation 11, which begins the second half of the tribulation. So we're entering into a different part of the tribulation, but our goal remains the same, to know Jesus and to make him known. Today's sermon is titled, The Two Witnesses. The Two Witnesses will be in Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14. Now, Revelation 10 and then Revelation uh, 11, verses 1 through 14, form an interlude in between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets, this is just by way of reminder because it's been a while, are referred to as the three woes. And as we have been moving through Revelation, what we see is the judgments of God are increasing with severity. So Revelation chapter 11, let's begin at verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So John is told to measure three things. He's told to measure the temple, then he's told to measure the altar, and then he's told to measure those who what? Who worship there. But he's to leave out the court that had been given over to the Gentiles. So these verses are a reference. They're pointing back to at least two things. First of all, they're pointing back to Ezekiel 40. Uh, God gave basically a vision of the future temple to Ezekiel, and that temple was being measured. And what was happening was this was a message of hope that God was speaking through Ezekiel to Ezekiel and to the people of his day. But second, the Gentiles trampling points back to Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, 24 says this. Uh, Jesus is talking to them about the end times, what it will be like. In verse 24, he says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the question is, what temple is he talking about in Revelation chapter 11? Because the temple in Jerusalem, it was destroyed by the Romans in AD 90, and there is no current active temple in Jerusalem right now. So what temple is being measured. I think that this most likely is figurative. It could be a temple that will be built in the future, but I think most likely it's figurative because of a distinction that is made in these verses. There is a distinction between the temple and the altar and the worshipers of verse 1 and the outer court and the Gentiles of verse 2. What happens is when you're measuring these things, to measure something is another way of saying to take ownership of it. It's saying, this is what all belongs to me. So to measure is to take ownership. And we saw in Revelation 7 that God sealed the believers at that time to protect them from his judgments. It was a way of him saying, you are mine. In fact, Revelation 7, just by way of reminder, verses 1 through 3, 
Read this, Revelation 7, 1 through 3. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So again, I think what's happening in Revelation Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2, is there's a distinction being made between the believers and those who are sealed of God, who are measured off, who are possessed by God, owned by God. They're his uh, people and the world. The people of God are measured. They're within God's care. But the Gentiles are on the outer court. That's a way of saying the unbelieving world, they're on the outside. And at the end of verse 2, 11, 2, it says the Gentiles will tread the holy city Underfoot for 42 months, 42 months. Then in verse 3, the very next verse, it says, And I will give power to my witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So the holy city that's referenced is Jerusalem. And the 42 months in verse 2, and the 1,260 days in verse 3, you mathematicians, what is that? It's the same time. It's just saying the same time in a different way. It's a three and a half year period. And this period, I believe, is also repeated in Revelation 12 and Revelation 13. So here's what you have going on. Revelation 11 begins the second half of the tribulation. The tribulation will be how many years? Seven, right? Not a trick, trick question. So the first three and a half years have already passed. So with Revelation 11, we're entering into the final three years, or the 42 months, or the 1,260 days. And during this period of time, God's going to continue to protect his people from his direct wrath. We don't see God pouring his wrath out on his people, but his people will suffer at the hands of the unbelieving world. But that suffering is only temporary because we know that one day God is going to vindicate his people. So let's read verse 3 one more time. Verse 3, Revelation eleven three, 3. And I will give power to my witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. So God will empower his witnesses, and they'll be in sackcloth. This reminds me of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, and he tells his disciples what? You will receive what? Power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, you'll receive power and you will be my witnesses, witnesses to me. And that the witnesses in Revelation 11, that they're clothed in sackcloth, that's simply a reference to the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist. So what's being pictured here is that these witnesses in Revelation 11 are standing in a long line of prophets. And what did prophets do? They spoke forth the word of God. They testified to God in the midst of a rebellious world. Next, Revelation eleven four reads, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So the two 
lampstands and the olive trees are actually a reference to Zechariah 4. Remember what we said when we began our study? To understand the 66th book of the Bible, you have to have some sort of an understanding of the previous 65. Much of what happens in Revelation is uh, being pointed, it's pointing back to things that were taking place thousands of years before. Sometimes prophecies that were given thousands of years before are being portrayed and pictured and fulfilled in Revelation. So again, this is a reference to Zechariah 4. And he was a prophet when the Jews were rebuilding the temple after the Babylonians had destroyed it in 586 B.C. And that was a difficult work. It was a work where they could easily become discouraged. But did you know that Zechariah's name, his very name, means Yahweh remembers. And his message that God gave him was a message of hope to those that were rebuilding the temple. They had become discouraged by the enormity of the work, and God sent them a message of hope. And that's what's being referenced here in Revelation 11. And just as God spoke through Zechariah a message of hope to the people that day that they would rebuild the temple and they would once again be a light to the world, I think what's happening here is that that background is there in Revelation 11 saying that these witnesses would be a light to the world. But it wouldn't be accomplished in their strength. God's purpose for his people will always be accomplished as they rely and trust in him. And it was in Zechariah 4, in fact, Zechariah 4, 6, that you find one of the more well-known verses in the Old Testament. It reads this, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So again, Back to Revelation 11. The people of God are going to be his witnesses to the world in the later half of the tribulation. But it's not going to take place in our own strength. It's going to take place as we are empowered by the Spirit of God to fulfill the purposes of God. And that brings us to our first point today. Do you want to know the power of God in your life, truly? Do you want to see God use you in the lives of others? Point number one is this. The power of God resides in the life, in a life that testifies of him. The power of God resides, makes its home, stays, is manifested in that life that testifies of him. There is just something powerful about opening your mouth and telling someone about Jesus. There's something even more powerful about a life that backs up what you speak. And I'm not saying perfection because we all fail at times, but there's something truly powerful about a life that loves God and loves people that backs up that testimony, that message of hope. I remember at a previous church I was at, we had an annual back-to-school rally. And we'd hand out backpacks of school supplies. And, I mean, I think the last year that I was there, I'm not trying to exaggerate this at all, I think we had 800 backpacks that we handed out. It was this huge community event. We had backpacks filled with school supplies. We had hot dogs and hamburgers where we were feeding people. We had uh, a stage set up and, and drawings and raffles and booths set up where you could get a free Bible. You could go by and have someone pray with you. And there were different booths set up. And I was in the prayer booth, 
And this is going to sound odd at first, but I was doing magic tricks in the prayer booth. Yeah, welcome to my world. So what I was doing was I had some sleight of hand illusions that I was doing to get people's attention. And as they would come over, it was just optical illusions, just tricks, that's all magic is. And I would get them to come over and see what I was doing, and then I'd get to know them, and I'd ask them if there's anything I could pray for them about. I don't know, it kept me entertained. There was this one group of kids that came over, they wanted to see what I was doing, and um, the mother walked over with them, and I did this one trick, this illusion, and I shared the gospel through it. And at the end of my gospel presentation, she asked me, but how do you know that's true? That was her immediate response when I finished sharing the gospel. And we talked back and forth for a few minutes about the claims of the gospel. I tried to share with her about the hope of Christ and how I knew that this was true. But she just kind of kept doing that, like shaking her head, like, mm, that's not going to do it. Mm, that's not going to do it. And she was just completely unconvinced. Then I switched gears. I told her about my life. I shared my testimony with her. I shared with her the difference that Jesus had made in my life. I told her what he had done for me personally, the power of God that I had known in my life. And then I told her that I was sitting there at that prayer booth in that moment talking to her because of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ wanted her to know him as well. She quit arguing with me at that point, and she became very quiet and just kind of stood there looking at me for a moment. And she said, thank you for sharing that with me. And then she simply walked off. You know, I don't know if that lady ever gave her life to Jesus Christ, but I do know that there is absolutely no argument against the power of God to change a life. People don't have a response to that. Again, the power of God resides in a life that testifies of him. If you don't feel like you're knowing the, the power of God in your life, guess what? Maybe it's time you get busy testifying of him. Just wait and see what God does in your life if you by faith will step out and just start opening your mouth. I remember my music minister at my church plant. He was bivocational. He was a finance a guy, and then he was my music minister, and he told me a story one time about how he was at the state fair, and somehow in a line or something, I can't remember how it, the conversation got started, but he got in conversation with the guy that was obviously infinitely smarter than he was. When it came to matching wits, he realized he was outdone, but he felt prompted to share his testimony, share about Jesus, and he began to do that, and he said, Paul Michael, you won't believe what God, what God gave me to say in that moment when I just started opening my mouth. I knew this guy was smarter than me. But when I just was willing to start talking, God gave me the words to say. And I was able to give a testimony to this guy. My friends, you want to know the power of God in your life. Start opening your mouth. You know what that will do too? Sometimes we're like, well, yeah, people know me. Look, they also will know the difference in you. But you know what also happens when you start sharing your testimony? It makes you accountable to start living it out a little bit more. 
And I think that sometimes while we don't like sharing the claims of Christ, because we know as soon as we do, we better get busy living the claims of Christ. You want to know the power of God in your life? Start talking about Jesus. But let's move on. Revelation 11, verses 5 and 6. Read this. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth. It's a little serious here. And devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Must be killed in this manner. Wow. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now this reminds me of two things. Uh, first of all, the Old Testament plagues. This sounds very Exodus-like, right? Moses and the plagues of Egypt. But it also reminds me of Jesus' words about the church. Listen to Matthew 16, 18. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Listen, when the church is doing what God has called us to do, Victory is not even a word in the, I mean, uh, excuse me, defeat is not even a word in the discussion. There is no defeat when the church of God is walking in the power of God. Even if the world takes our lives, that is a victory. Because we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. So the last question in verse 6 is, who are these two witnesses? Because it gets pretty serious there. What's going on? And first, why two? Why two? Why two witnesses? Any idea? Well, I think it goes back again to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it required two witnesses uh, for legal matters. In fact, let me read Deuteronomy 19.15 to you. It says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So there's this overarching legal theme in Revelation. And here it is in a nutshell. God, who created all things, is sitting on his throne as the judge of all things. And so these two witnesses, they fit within this larger context, this legal context of the book of Revelation. And what these two witnesses are doing is they're testifying against the world. And there's two, again, because that's what's required for legal testimony. And they are supernaturally protected by God. Look at verse 5 again. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now, this doesn't mean that these witnesses are some scary monster. Some people have gone as far as to say these are dragons or something ridiculous like that. This, again, is figurative language. Fire throughout is representative of what? The judgment of God. So what do we to do and how do we understand the significance of this? Well, first we need to understand the two has to do with this legal theme that they are testifying against the world. Okay? But again, who are they? Well, some believe they're Old Testament saints like Enoch and Elijah. Enoch and Elijah didn't die. They were just taken up to heaven. So some think that they're going to come back. Or maybe Elijah and Moses because of the signs that are equated with them. Others believe they're two people that we don't know who they are yet, but they will be empowered 
and have a similar ministry like Moses and Elijah. And if you believe these are two literal people that are to come, that's fine. Uh, There's really no way to know who they are. We just know in God's time, he'll reveal them. So, you know, there's no need to guess. It's not going to be, you know, whatever. God doesn't make it clear. And so when it's not clear, what do we do? We stick with what is clear. We know that God is going to raise up some witnesses that will testify against the world. But I think in the larger context of Revelation, as well as some clues in this text, I think that these two witnesses are symbolic. Symbolic of all believers during the second half of the tribulation whose responsibility, their job, their mission is going to be to testify against the world. It's possible, in fact, that in Revelation 11, and we'll see this over the next few weeks, 11, 11, 12, and in verse, excuse me, chapter 13, in those three chapters, chapters 11, 12, and 13, it's possible that these chapters are actually portraying the same events from just a different perspective. Kind of like if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're seeing the Gospels, you're seeing the life and the ministry of Jesus from different perspectives. It's very possible that Revelation 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 13 are doing that with this three and a half year period. It's describing it from different angles. And as we've seen, God will seal believers in the last days. So it's possible that instead of two specific people, this represents all believers during this time of the tribulation that are still alive, that God is going to protect for a certain time while they witness about him. Moving on, Revelation eleven seven reads, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Well, that took a turn, didn't it? They went from not being able to be killed to now the beast shows up and he overcomes them. So while God protects the church, his witnesses for a time, there'll be another time he allows them to be overcome. But the story's not over. That's the thing. The story hasn't ended. There's more to come. The one who persecutes them is called the what? The beast. And he comes from the bottomless pit. And up until this point in Revelation, we haven't seen the beast figure. This is the first time he steps on the scene. Now we have seen the bottomless pit. That was in Revelation 9. And I think as we continue on through Revelation, you'll see that this beast figure uh, is actually the Antichrist. This is the first appearance in the book of Revelation of the Antichrist who will be a human being who is demonically empowered. And this continues the overall theme of Revelation that while God spares his people from his direct wrath, the world will persecute his people. But the end, the end, we always have to keep the end in mind, is that God will vindicate all of his people. This verse, I believe, is a reference to Daniel 7, 7. Daniel was given a reference of things to come. We've seen that there's a strong correlation between Daniel 7 and the book of Revelation. Listen to this one verse, Daniel 7, 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. You know, in 2022, in Western culture, we see martyrdom, I would say, largely, as something to avoid. 
But the early church, especially if you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd century documents, they saw it as a privilege. In fact, one Christian writer from the early centuries said that martyrdom is the beginning of discipleship. They didn't consider it unfair to suffer for Jesus. They saw it as something to celebrate, to be counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. And these witnesses in the latter half of the tribulation will be faithful unto death. But we see their death is not the end of the story. Revelation 11.8 reads, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was what? Crucified. So that their bodies um, lie in the street. This is a manner of insult and dishonor. The beast not only conquers and kills these witnesses, but he'll leave their bodies open as like a display of his victory, asserting his dominance over these witnesses. But again, this isn't the end of the story. Osborne, one commentator, says it this way, The great city had killed Jesus, and now it has killed the two witnesses who are one with their Lord in suffering and death. This part of Revelation also has a connection between Psalm 79, 1 through 3. I just think it's amazing how God ties together his word. It's amazing. Psalm 79, 1 through 3 reads this. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your saints they have given as food for the birds of the heavens. The flesh of your saints the birds of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. Not only will the beast dishonor the slain witnesses, but look what the world does. The world judge, uh, joins him in it. Look at Revelation 11, 9 through 10. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, so everywhere, will see their dead bodies for three and a half days. And that's again why I think it was maybe more than two people. Uh, it's maybe witnesses all over the world that the whole world sees and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will look at this, rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another. They're throwing a party because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, weren't they just testifying of God? How is that? Tormenting them. Well, the world is going to look on these two witnesses and rejoice that they're dead. When the Bible, well, in Revelation, when it says those who dwell on the earth, it's always used negatively. Because those who dwell on the earth, that is a picture painting of these people that are in opposition to heaven. But again, how is it that these witnesses, these prophets, tormented the people that are on the earth? Well, it's because the darkness doesn't like the light. Jesus in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, says this, John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in 
God. But note, this will only take place for how long? Three and a half days. You know what that means? It means God is still in control. This will only happen because it is according to the purposes and the plans of God. And that brings us to point number two. No suffering is wasted when it is placed at the foot of the cross. No suffering is wasted when it is placed at the foot of the cross. Listen, my friends. Suffering does not mean God has lost control. Suffering does not mean God is being mean to you. Suffering doesn't mean that you're no good. Suffering is a part of life. There are times that you will suffer because of sinful choices that other people have made. There are also times that you will suffer because you've made a mistake. But because God is sovereign, because he is the king of the universe, because he is working all things according to the counsel of his will, if you will bring your suffering to him, it will not be wasted. It will not be wasted. I like to say it this way. The suffering that seems pointless is misery. But suffering that makes us more like Jesus has meaning. And that's exactly what God does when we bring it to him. When we really let go. When we join Jesus in saying, not my will, but yours be done. I was looking at some statistics this week. And according to Open Doors, their 2021 report There are over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. In 2021, they recorded, this is that we know of, 4,761 Christians killed for their faith. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked 4,227 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. Again, don't waste your suffering. Take it to the Lord and let him bring meaning to it. Let him do his transforming power in you. But let's finish the rest of our passage for today. We need to wrap it up. And we'll be quick. Revelation 11, verses 11 through 14. Let's read all of these verses together. Uh, At the same time, I mean. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Okay, it takes another turn. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So verse uh, 11, and the breath of life entering them, reminds me of Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, where God gave Ezekiel a vision of These dry bones coming back to life and God breathed life into them. It reminds me of Genesis 2-7 where God 
breathed life into man. And I think we do well to remember that all of life comes from God and he is in control of all of life. And it's not clear in the text through the loud verses in 12, verse 12, but I think it's God the Father who's simply calling his children home. They have suffered and they have died for their testimony and now it is time for them to be vindicated and go home and receive their eternal reward. There are some that hold to a mid-tribulation rapture. They believe the rapture of the church will happen in the middle of the tribulation. And so this is the passage that they think pictures that mid-tribulation rapture. I think that Revelation 11 is most likely a picture of witnesses during the final half of the tribulation that are testifying of God, that are persecuted and killed by God, but God in some way vindicates them and brings them home to heaven. And the judgments of God in, verses, in verse 13 and the people's response of giving glory to God, that doesn't necessarily mean people are saved. Some commentators tried to paint that as some great revival that took place. I don't know that that's necessarily it because we saw earlier in Revelation 9 that even in the face of some of God's most severe judgments, people refuse to repent. I think what's happening is that the people on earth are seeing God's people vindicated and they're going, okay, something's going on here. We might be in trouble. Listen to Revelation 9, verses 20 to 21, and I'm almost done. Revelation 9, 20 to 21, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. That they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Again, there are some people, it doesn't mean it matter what God does, they will not bend the knee. But to bring it to a close today, I want to point out several parallels between the ministry of the witnesses and the ministry of Jesus. I found this as I was going through some old class notes. I had taken a class on the book of Revelation years ago. And so I, I'm not trying to plagiarize. I don't know where the source was on this. I just found it in my class notes. I thought it was pretty good. And in Revelation, believers do what Jesus did. There's a picture that believers are carrying on the ministry of Jesus. We see that in Acts as well. And significantly, these two witnesses have six very specific correlations with Jesus. Let me just read them real quick. First, they had a ministry on earth for three and a half years. Second, they speak and do signs. Third, they encounter satanic persecution and opposition. Fourth, they suffer violent deaths in the city of Jerusalem. Fifth, they resurrect after three days. Sixth, they went up into heaven in a cloud. Again, I think this all points to the figurative nature that these are witnesses. These are whatever believers exist in the last half of the tribulation. Our job is to do what our job has always been, to testify of Jesus and that we will be persecuted, and we will even die for our faith. But God will vindicate us, and God will bring us home. And so to close, I want to ask you to think about two questions. Um, well, I guess four. I've kind of grouped them together in groups of two. But first two is, how badly do you want to know Jesus? And are you willing to suffer if that's what it takes to know him more? 
We pray, God, I want to know you. God, make me more like you. What if God says, I am? That's what this suffering is. It's the answer to your prayer. I'm making you more like my son. How badly do we want to know Jesus more and are we willing to suffer if that's what it takes? Second set of questions is this, how badly do we want other people to know about Jesus? You know, sinners sin, that's what they do. We shouldn't expect them to do anything different. And I don't like what the world does. Man, if the world was trying to, you know, push its agendas on my kids and school systems and do different things where they're forcing their agenda on my family, yeah, I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna be upset about that. I'm gonna take a stand. But I'm not gonna go around being angry at lost people. You know why? Because if they don't come to believe in Jesus, they spend an eternity in hell. And I think that's punishment enough. They don't need my wrath. They don't need my vengeance. They need me to do everything I can to help them escape the wrath to come. And so I want to ask you, how badly do you want other people to know Jesus? And are you willing to suffer persecution if that's what it takes? Are you willing to love other people enough that you're willing to be persecuted for them to know about Jesus Christ? When I was in Pilot Point, we're talking about just right outside of Denton, Texas, I was kind of like a chaplain for the police and fire department and I had a police officer, I'm trying to be careful because I know this is going out of line, I had a police officer uh, approach me on the side and say, would you mind visiting this family and specifically this youth because if we get sent to this house again, he's going to juvie for a long time. And I went and I began to talk to him and I was, his family welcomed me in. They were very gracious and I began to talk to him about Jesus. And I began to tell him about the difference that Jesus could make in their lives and what Jesus could do for their family. You know what this young man said? He said, well, great, when can he come over? In the United States of America, in the 2000s, right outside of the Metroplex, there was a young man that didn't know who Jesus Christ was. He thought I was talking about a friend of mine that I could just kind of come, have come down the street and would help him fix their problems. My friend, we live in a world that needs to know about Jesus Christ. I want my life to be so consumed with a love for Jesus that I'm willing to face whatever it takes to know him more and to make him known. That is a life of power and of joy, knowing Jesus and making him known. Would you please stand with me? As we get ready to conclude our service, we will have a song of response the song is not a response responding to a pastor or a church. It's our opportunity to respond to the living God. Yes, our response is more than this time. It's as we go out the rest of this day and as God gives us days the rest of this week to continue to be transformed, to be continue to be changed, to become more Christ-like. But sometimes as the word of God is proclaimed, we need to commit some things to God here and now before we leave. There is an urgency to the call of God in our lives. 
Maybe some of you, you've never put your faith in Christ. You, you've never trusted in Jesus that he is the son of God that was sent to die for your sins that rose again from the grave. And God has given us his word that if we believe upon Jesus, we will be saved. And for some of you, there is an urgency. Don't leave today without believing upon Jesus Christ. Many of you, you already have. You already have. But our lives don't show the power of it. Maybe it's time today to say, God, I commit. It scares me to death, but I commit this week to do my best, empowered by your spirit, to share you with somebody. Maybe that's where we need to begin. I'm going to pray as God leads you respond to God. Let's be obedient to what he wants to do in our midst. And I'm excited about what that will look like. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you are at work in this world, saving people, transforming lives, making us more like Jesus. And you want us in on that. That's our mission. That's what we're to be about. There's power in that. There's excitement and joy in that, even when we suffer for it. God, have your way. We give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.